Yes, welcome again for another Physics Ed podcast. Glad to have you again. And in this particular chat, we are talking about STEM in the outdoor environment and how you can make it happen. And I tell you what, Meredith Ebbs can certainly guide us along that path. She is a massively experienced teacher with a background in education, environmental science, and digital technologies, and has actually worked for four years previously as a CSIS New South Wales Project Officer on the Digital Technologies Project. You're listening to the Physics Ed podcast. For hundreds of ideas, free experiments, and more, go to Physics Education. And now, here's your host, Ben Newsom. Systems and creating training manuals, and she's also accredited as a Makey Makey ambassador, an Apple teacher, an Apple teacher in Swift Playground, a Sphero lead educator, and I can tell you now, she will guide us right through how you can use micro bits and very much more in this chat. So let's head on in and listen to how well Meredith has been making outdoors really work when it comes to STEM. This is the Physics Ed Podcast. We're all about science, ed tech and more. To see 100 fun free experiments you can do with your class, go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. And click 100 free experiments. Uh, So, my name's Meredith. I am primary trained teacher with a science degree. So I'm a fairly unusual species. Um, I actually did my degree in land management and um, physical geography, so soils and ecology, biology, and um, have had a very varied background with education being the common thing. I've got to ask straight away, so you you chose primary. That's interesting. That's what everyone says. Why'd you say that? That's Why'd you do the that? Lecturers said the lecturers yeah. said that. Why would you do that? I love that because honestly, I three quarters of my work is working with primary kids, so I'm totally with you here. But I just want to know what? Why did you do it? Uh, I think it was the age group. Yeah, I think it was the age group. I, I wasn't fussed on. You know, antenna scary. So <laughs> <laughs> I felt so. Actually, my favourite year group to teach is U three four. That's my happy space. Yeah. Uh, they can read they can spell they can use a ruler after a little bit of practice um but they're not you know they've still got a little little bit of respect for authority and they're not hormonal <laughs> I like to say that <laughs> I don't like you can say that I mean we're all educators here we've all dealt with different age groups we all have a our favorite I do actually understand definitely grades three and four for sure um yes they can hold scissors that's a handy thing they can hold uh, scissors they get excited about stuff and they're not too cool for school that's probably what I mean they're not too cool for school they're very excitable in that you can draw them into um new concepts and new ideas quite easily so, totally so I mean I must say what's great about what you get to do i mean you teach science outdoors in lots of different ways and gee that must lean on some of your background uh the 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 last three years i have really resurrected a lot of knowledge from my science degree so i'm um we're teaching a year four straight class and we spend a lot of time outside we um have to teach outside one session a day yep once a fortnight we're off site so excursion for want of a better word but we don't we go to the beach or to the bush or to um you know different spaces outdoor spaces with um outdoor inquiry so i've had to reinvent all of my stem knowledge some people might know me through caesar project with the university of adelaide Mm -hmm. um which is i think when we reconnected physically and 
through those sorts of events um, where I was teaching teachers how to use digital technologies. Yep. So coming back into a classroom, I've had to rethink how do I teach STEM and digital technologies outside? So we still have a lot of technology and we still have um, access to different devices, but being outside changes everything. And it's been actually really good with um, the last couple of years. Being outside is good for your well-being. It's good for your health. And so exploring those things. So micro bits are probably my go-to tool with yeah. um, teaching outside with STEM. Oh, micro bits are fantastic. I mean, firstly, they're accessible. The costs are low, but they do lots of great stuff. I mean, so if you haven't seen micro bit, just literally type in micro. In my, I've always messed up colon, <laughs> bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I micro, think it comes up with micro bit as well. Yeah. Um, Microbit.org, I think, yeah. is the foundation's website. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing set of tools that are actually there. But I do like what you're saying about, I mean, bring technology outside. I mean, okay, I've got a background in environmental biology, so that's definitely my, my thing back in time. But you think about uh, tech, you ask a kid, what does tech look like? What is it technology? I mean, I'm surrounded by stuff. I'm sitting in a video conference room filled with tech, but that's the point. It's in a room. It's protected from the um, outside. It's mm. not going to get wet, I hope, <laughs> and then we're going to be okay. But you're actually putting stuff outside where things move things change that's yeah. important yeah I think we um being outside I've had to rethink everything because a lot of the stem projects are um targeted for being done in a large school hall or in your classroom lots of practical coding like on a on a browser so what we do is we do the coding in the classroom um and we design our projects which usually are very simple, like anybody could do them. A lot of the projects I use are actually found on the microbit.org website yeah. because my focus isn't um, extensive coding. My focus at the moment has been how do we make STEM real and investigating real-world problems. Yeah. So, so will I give you an example? Please, I was going to ask straight away. <laughs> uh, so we did a really simple thing with a counter. And um, we designed the counter. So on button A, press, add a number. On button B, reset the counter. So that right. was the very simple. It introduced um, variables and just a really simple loop and a very simple code. Yep. Really simple. So year three, four, because um, last year I had a composite. So year three, four, you're not really talking difficult code. You're talking concepts. That's what we're teaching. Yep. So we did a counter. We went to the beach. So you could do this in a playground yeah. to go off site. And then we, I gave the students different living things that they had to survey. Yeah. Um, that was all well and good. And we got there, it was raining, right? We don't yep. cancel excursions because it's raining. Yep. So we just go in the rain. So we had to change because there was no birds, there was no lizards, there was no, the things we would normally see at our beach weren't around. So we changed it to, arachnids and um, a banksia, type of banksia that is quite common in that space. And when we got there, we saw a pod of 12 dolphins and we saw, well, one of my shark experts in my class believes it was a white pointer. So we saw a white pointer, then we saw the dolphins, then we saw three bull sharks in a rock pool. Right. And then they left the rock pool before the tide was too low. So somebody was counting sea animals 
And so we just did all that. Then the next day, I wrote all the data down. We, we collated all our data on the different micro bits. And the next day, we then made up a page with a graph and we recorded the data. We talked about the differences. Why did we not see any birds? Why did we not see any lizards? Um, and then they had to present their knowledge on a page and we made it into a book. What I love about that is that that tool that you made is useful in nearly, well, frankly, your school, <laughs> to be honest, if you used it in life. You could do it in the school. Now, if your school doesn't have a lot of insects because a lot of schools spray every holidays. Yep. So if your school doesn't have a lot of insects, you could do it with plants. Oh, totally. I mean, especially when you think about uh, biological sampling techniques, I mean, you could have a quadrat set up and you don't, don't yeah. the, you're not, if you're not sure what a quadrat is, just type in quadrat and you'll see that it's really a particular size square looking thing that you place, hopefully gently. Mind you, as a heads up, if you're dealing with grade threes and four, they won't always be gentle with said no. quadrat, so make it strong. Yeah. Uh, but the idea is meant to you know, reduce, um, you know, sort of your bias in your sampling. Yeah. But then you've got to count the stuff that you're seeing. That's and right. that would be handy. I was thinking also too, like a mark and recapture would be really handy as well. Um, I mean, depends on how much time and what it is that you're actually marking and recapturing, how you're doing it in a way that doesn't hurt the animal or whatever. But creating a, an, an estimation of relative abundance can be done at this at this level with a very simple formula and a counter made out of a microbit. Yeah, it could. I mean, I've known that there's sharks, I mean, mid-north coast of New South yeah. Wales. I've known that there's sharks in our waters. Uh, but I've never seen them. Yeah. I've never. I've lived on the coast for all all of my life. I've never seen any sharks. So the fear of the irrational fear of sharks is quite irrational because I swam at the. I've been at the beach like fifty years and never seen a shark. And then it just happened that it was a an overcast day. We were there all day. Yep. So we saw this over a period of time, and I think they were observing. Yeah. No one's looking. So um, with the uh, quadrat, um, we actually have done an activity like that. So citizen science is something yeah. that your listeners might be interested in as well to research. Um, we use, I use an app called iNaturalist. And what I did was we, we went to the bush quite a lot last year because of the um, social, social distancing and whatever. So we went to the bush. <clears throat> And we did one, one day we actually focused on the Australian native violet. And so they had to uh, draw the native violet. Well, first of all, they had to find it. Where does it live? What does it look like? Then they had to draw it. And I'd taken a whole stack of 30 centimetre rulers and each group was given rulers. And they had to work out how many violets grow in a square that's 30 centimetres by 30 centimetres. Uh, they had to identify the habitat. So we went for a walk through the bush and we, where we sit generally is um, quite moist. Yes. On sort of in from a, a swamp. And then you walk, we walk up a hill and we end up in a dry sclerophyll eucalypt forest. So the violets only grow in the moist space. Yeah. Uh, they don't grow up in the dry space. And so they had to identify the habitat, why are they there, how big is the plant, the fact that it has runners and it sort of grows as a ground cover. Then we used, um, they gave me some search terms and we used my phone to look up information about the Australian violet. 
they have a all have a little book, A5 Nature Journal. Yeah. And they had to write down the scientific name of it. We had we we talked about how would we describe it. Um, I found some facts and read the facts out, and they had to sort of write down their favorite fact. And then once again, the next day we came back and we collated our data, did some graphs, talked about the size. They had to then Google their own facts about the plant that they'd studied and draw pictures. And yes. then I, I had some photos. So I printed out some photos and gave it to them and they had to create a poster. And then we, once again, we made it into a book. Oh, you can totally make it um, kind of cutesy, mate. If, it's, if I'm thinking of the same violet, the old headed Horatii off the top of my head, um, it looks like Lisa Simpson head. Off the it top does, of my head. it does. And, you know, um, during the bio, Backyard Bioblitz in May, which is another iNaturalist project, um, my, my class were connected with two American classes and two Canadian classes. Mm -hmm. And we were uploading using Flipgrid videos of animals in our space. And... Um, somebody uploaded a violet from america and so my kids uploaded our violet and then they could talk about the different the different features of the violet how they were similar and how they were different um so it was quite a really exciting um activity for the class the kids love taking videos of our plants and animals and talking about the, they were doing like a steve Irwin type of presentation this is an, a wattle tree and this is an acacia and then it was it was really exciting for them to be connected with other countries. Oh gosh, that actually gets me thinking. I mean, you only briefly said Flipgrid, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And there's a small point point and shoot uh, off your phone, um, cup, asynchronous, so to speak, uh, videos of what you've been doing. You could create a grid, a page where it was day one of sampling, day two of sampling, three, four, five, six, where kids could then describe what's going on. I mean, I, I like how it's it's not about the tech; it's mm -hmm. about the outcome. It is. It's always about the outcome. And I suppose being outside, like some of the other projects that I've sort of done is um, light levels using a microbit. Yeah. Where, where we go and look at why light is important. So they had to do a little bit of research on what light is and why it's important. And Stephen Heppel has some great information on his webpage about light levels and how in England they shut down jails if the light levels are too low because the inmates become violent. And so we were talking about light levels and um, we first of all started with the classroom and um, they decided that our light levels probably aren't as high as they should be. They're not low, but they're not as high as they should be. There's a recommendation for classrooms. So then we went outside, well, what's the light in direct sun? What's the light under the shadiest tree that we could find? What's light under a gum tree? What's, you know, different light levels? And then talking about how important it is for sun and vitamin D and, you know. So the, the investigation goes quite a long way with, um, but it's always you've got this technology underlying of how you found your information. Oh, totally. I mean, you can use light levels to assess whether your fluorescent lamps are actually as good as an incandescent globe and then maybe go down the, um, okay, so we're getting this energy saving. Are we still getting the same light levels? Yes or no? That's right. Yeah, mm. that's right. And um, so there's, like I said, there's lots of different ways. Um, something that I haven't explored yet is drones, but the licensing is changing. Yes. So you, um and also you, there's a limp that changes rules on how many drones you can have in a space. And, you know, um, so 
that makes it a little bit different. But I wouldn't mind getting a drone with a camera so that we could fly over our space outside and and look at what we can see from a bird's eye view. Yeah, totally. Actually, um, you can use drones in lots of different ways. I always thought about um, a drone being used as you know, like I think about when you um you teach space and you got the Sun, Mercury, Venus, Mars, etc. You know, the you could have it almost as it goes upwards. You could have it start at say the ground level is the sun, and yeah. then if you use an AU astronomical unit, you could go up every so often to represent you know the different planets' distance from said sun, and that could yeah. really help because usually people just get kids to stand on an oval. But I did that. Mm. yeah, I've done that with you five. Yeah. Um. Um. Pluto doesn't fit. So, no. <laughs> you know, and it's not a planet really, apparently, anyway. So, but if you start at the sun, it's really funny to see on an oval that there's only like all the planets are really close together. And then you jump to Saturn, Jupiter, and Uranus yep. to get quite. And then what we did, we set it up. The kids had big posters. They put posters over their head with a picture of their planet. And um, then we flew a drone sort of um along the oval on the off like so we all stood on one side the drone was on the other side because you oh, cool. fly a drone over the top of you but the kids actually had to work out the astronomical units yeah um it was a hard activity for them it was a hard one but it's actually not difficult because i think randis is like 99 yeah it like is it, it works out nicely yeah it does it fits beautifully on the oval i think that's on my youtube actually from a long time ago the yeah. Now it's good fun. It's actually surprising what kids think. So, I mean, the solar system often, you know, they see auroras and it's going to be regular. And so they think it's going to be this case and it's, and it's not. Yeah. Um, actually, so if you're listening in, challenge your students to th say, think of all the satellites that are above our, yeah. our, our atmosphere. Um, and then think about the distance away from the moon. And I say, well, righto, where are most of the satellites? And sort of like, you know, get two kids to stand, one on the moon, one's going to be um, Earth. And then you just stand in the middle somewhere or close to the moon or wherever and just say, right, hands up, where are most of the satellites? And you watch them, most of them put their hands up at halfway. Ah. Yeah. And yet you know, space starts at 400 Ks above a head. Like that's where the International Space Station is. So it's not that far above a head at all. And yeah, there's, um, yeah, there's very far satellites at 36,000 kilometers away. But you kind of think of it this way. It's like, well, we only take like eight minutes or so to get to space, but it took three days to get to the moon. Yeah. It's rather far away. It is. Mm. It is. And it's hard for kids to visualise and think. There's actually a good website, um, Space Junk. I can't remember what the ending is. But it shows all the rubbish, space rubbish in yeah. our atmosphere or around our planet that we have left. Because when they finish with a rocket, they just leave it there. Yeah. Um, it's really sad, actually. Which is actually the interesting part when we're talking about um, doing STEM outdoors, science outdoors. I mean, inevitably there's a sustainability event and now we're, okay, randomly we've just gone down this rabbit hole of talking about space junk, but there is junk out in their environment. And I suppose with your micro bits that you're using, they could count said junk and hopefully clean up as they go along. Yeah. We, um, well, this is Plastic Free July. Yeah. Um, and one of the projects I've put forward for the school is to go to the beach and uh, collect and identify microplastics um, because even though I went to Coogee mm, last year, sometime beginning last year, for a beach volleyball tournament, yeah. I was horrified how much microplastic was along the shoreline. Um, I don't 
know if it's because it just wasn't cleaned recently or if that's all the time or if there was a currents. But I haven't noticed that much microplastic where I am. Mm. And so um, I have, since the storms with all the flooding, I have noticed a big increase in the amount of plastic on the beaches even though our council does clean it up, there's still a lot of plastics around. So that was something that I thought would be very relevant for schools on the coast, anywhere yes. on the coast. Um, even if they have a large water, like a dam or something nearby a river, they could go and do microplastic sampling um, and divide it up and work out what types of plastic is the source of the rubbish uh, and work out, you know, is it cigarette butts? Because I know, you know, in the 90s, cigarette butts were the largest pollutant. But I think now is a different story. I don't think smoking is as commonplace as it was. So is that still the largest pollutant or is it other forms of plastic? Which is way of doing scientific reasoning for kids because, I mean, um, we don't want them to go in there with the predetermined answer. We, we need them to find the data first. Like, ask the question, but go get the data. Yeah. So you can collect and then sort mm. your um, plastic waste that you find and um, work out the source. And is there a pattern of where the plastic is? So if there is a drainage space on your beach or on your for your river is it coming out of the drain therefore it's coming from the street or is it along the shoreline in which case it's coming inland in from the ocean which is really a good uh handy way to start your citizen science sort of thing i mean i was actually thinking as you're describing the sharks like so if you're in australia there's this great um uh, platform called uh, red map oh. uh red map does um basically it you you say hey i've seen x this these fish or whatever out, out in this area and it collates it it's a bit like the other like the frog id app um yeah, i love that one yeah it's a, it's a good one uh, absolutely but it's a but i mean i guess we could look at rubbish it'd be interesting to see if there is a citizen science rubbish one which i don't know if they um, think of. there might be liter literati i think ah literati uh there's quite a lot of digital citizen um apps uh, so there's one for, well, I use iNaturalist. Yep. That's my main one. iNaturalist is great because you can take a photo of a plant, animal or insect, fungi even, upload the picture and then someone else identifies it for you. Yeah, and what funny. happens is it, um, it then creates a map of all the plants and animals that have been found by any user and you can basically wherever you are you can see other plants and animals that have been found so in our school we have a project for basically our peninsula so we are back on to bushland and a lake but where our housing estate is like a finger so it comes cuts into a piece of bushland and we have a project for our school only that i've set up so if, and we have um our staff are now actively taking photographs and uploading. Every time you upload a photo, it goes to your, the project that you're a member of. And our playground, I can actually take a map. I've now got a map of all the animals and plants that we have found in our playground. And that includes everything from 
koalas and, and lace monitor lizards to um, like little red ruby cap fungi, which is like a centimetre high. Um, oh, wow. So we've got this range and I love it because it's colour coded. I love it because the kids now know that if they find something in the playground, they come and find me and say, Meredith, come, because they call us by our first name. Yeah. Come and find, take a photo of this one. Look what I found, this great caterpillar. Um, so that's something that we do every time we go out. I take photos. What's great about this is that, okay, first off, all the students know to come to you to go show stuff in the first place. But I was just thinking this allows the opportunity for temporal data, looking at year on year changes mm. over time. Mm. And that can make a huge difference for kids' understanding of actually what's going on in their environment. It can. You can extract the data from our naturalist into a spreadsheet. Mm. I'm still processing how to make that work. How can I use that data? in a visualised way offline because yep. at the moment it's a map on my phone or on the phone of whoever is taking the photos on the iPad. Um, but because uh, iNaturalist, you have to be over 13. Yes. So there is a Seek version, which is for under 13, but they do need Wi-Fi to take the photo to identify the spot because when you take, the, you take the photo, you upload it to the app and it automatically records... Um, if you've taken the photograph while you've got the app open, it will automatically record your latitude and longitude and the location on the map. Yeah, got it. And that also brings in the the, the, the privacy issues, et cetera, because it's kind of saying, hey, I'm here right now. Yes. And mm. it also um, has com well, members of the public comment yeah. and comment and identify your species, which is why it's on the teacher's phones. Yeah. Um, but you can do it on an iPad with Seek. Uh, it's a little bit different. I haven't used Seek because you have to have Wi-Fi to be able to identify your location. And so Wi-Fi, we do have Wi-Fi into the playground, but not right to the back, um, which is where most of the kids find the interesting caterpillars and stuff like that, because we don't spray. So years ago, um, prior to education, and it's a while ago now <laughs> for me, like like a lot of us, um, I used to work at um, doing uh, bushland surveys and uh, regenerating bushland and whatnot and I wish I had this particular app so uh, mm. um, there's one called plant net yep. plant net uses AI not humans uh, and AI uh, to actually identify what the plant is which means of course dat bad data in bad data out so you need yeah. people to actually identify it correctly yeah. for enough times but I have had to play with it and I've done it on um, Australian native um, flora of which I genuinely know what it is and it's right. And I've done it from weird different angles and it's still right. <laughs> there you go. Mm. Right. I mean, uh, this is just one way that you can incorporate citizen science. There's actually lots and lots of projects that you can find that are specific, very specific. So uh, last year we participated in a dead treats project where the bushland that we were going to, I've been going there for three years now and when I first started going there, there was one dead tree. And then uh, what, yeah, I've lost track of the years. When was the fires? 2020, December 2020. Yeah. So we had fires from 19. July 2019 till mm. February 2020. So we actually started up burning a long time before everywhere else. And um, there was only one or two dead trees. 
But what I've noticed in the last two, three years, um, when we did this project last year, in the two years, a lot of, there was an increase in dead trees. Yeah. So where the fire went through the wetlands, a lot of those trees haven't regrown because they were paper barks and paper barks aren't necessarily fire resistant because they're swamp um, based. Uh, and then since then, we've noticed that in the spot where we sit, there's actually another large, very large tree that has died. And um, it's good if they have hollows for animals and things, but the risk is it's just gonna fall and um, so we participated by mapping. So I made a map, um, just an outline, and asked the kids. We walked through the forest and they had through the bushland, and they had to identify on the map all the different dead trees. And then I logged that with the citizen science um, project. Um, another project that's on this month, uh, July, is uh, moths and butterflies. It's out of Canberra, so not sure that it's anywhere else other than Canberra. But the problem is they don't actually know uh, all of the caterpillar species. They don't necessarily know what butterflies and moths they turn into. So there's a lot of opportunity there for kids to catch caterpillars and the plant that they're on, put them in a fish tank and wait till they hatch the butterfly, photograph the caterpillar, photograph the moth or the butterfly and let it go. Isn't that really good for kids to understand that even though it's, you know, right now we'll timestamp this chat, 2022, we still don't know something as basic as that for species that we encounter every day. It's, I, I was shocked. Mm. And um, then I thought, well, unless somebody takes the time to catch and release, you're not going to know which, and, and possibly, I'm going to put it out there, is it the same for frogs? Yeah. Yeah. You're actually reminding me of years ago, um, there was issues. They're still trying to declutter the, the dinosaur bone collections because they've been misidentified like seven times. Oh, wow. Some of them. Um, it's a genuine issue, genuine issue that's actually happened. Is that, um, you know, different sets of people identify different things. I mean, there's a big argument about which, which is what and whatnot, but this happens. Science mm -hmm. can actually be messy and it's actually a good thing for kids to understand. Yeah. So, um, Another app that's great is the Frog ID app, which you've already mentioned. Mm. Uh, so during lockdown, I actually sent that home as a project for the kids to do when they were doing their walks and things with their families. If you hear a frog, you record the frog sound. Now, sadly, sometimes it comes back and it says it's a cricket or an insect. Uh, so yeah. don't, don't give up, keep going. Um, but what they want, because they can't get out to look for frogs, apparently there's a large problem with frogs dying from disease. So I think it's the Australian Museum. Yeah, it is. Australian Museum. Uh, they are identifying frog locations based on the recordings that people send, and they want you to do it all year round so they can work out when the frogs are active. And so if you hear frogs, you... Um, can take, they take photographs and a recording. And if you find a frog that doesn't look very healthy, they also want those photos as well. So they can identify what sorts, they can work out diseases and things that, you know, and work out why frogs are dying. So good news about this is that um, some schools are BYOD, others aren't and I understand why and we, we, we get that. But teachers, as long as you're allowed to actually hold said phone, you have a device to collect things. That's right. 
That's mm. right. So for high school, mm. this is a great use, practical use for phones in class time. Um, and it's a practical science, legitimate science activity that could be done with all ages from, you know, um, kindy right through to, I don't, I don't know, do they do investigative sciences in year 12 or is there too much? Oh, it's cluttered, but they still got to do first-hand investigations as part of it. They've got no choice. Like there is, yeah. you know, it's, they've got to do it. It's, but yeah, I mean, and also even if it's not just for the apps. And gosh, there are some great apps. I'm a big fan of. Um, I mean, I think it's changed its name, but Google Science Sci Journal is just um, amazing. There's a lot of stuff on your phone, and it's not just the camera. I can tell you that. There's a yeah. magnetometer. Who would have yeah. thought? You could actually, you could actually work out whether you know, how magnetic is said rock. That's yeah. an idea. Yeah. And and um, the comment the compass is another yeah. great tool. Um, so we there's there is a lot of uses for your digital technologies. Um, your microbit can also be used as an accelerometer and a, clonom a clonometer. Yeah. Um, it can also be used for um, the light, and then you can also use a basic counter. Um, I've used it as a pedometer. In maths, I've used it for, um, which is sort of a different tangent yet again. Yeah. But I think people think STEM has to be expensive. People think STEM has to be, you know, rockets and, and all these fancy things that you have to buy. And a microbit is $30 that you can then use to build a project in your about your school. So like, for example, um, I participated in a webinar uh, last month on shade. How much shade is in your school and measuring surface temperature related to climate change. Um, so you could take longitudinal recordings of temperature in different spaces around your school. You could measure percentage of your playground that is covered by shade which is actually really important in Australia to have a shaded playground. Um, so you could map it and then work out, do cross sections and work out how much shade is, is in your playground, uh, which is another practical STEM. It's um, science, it's maths, you're using technology for your shade. What are we determining shade to be in terms of light levels? And how much is sun safe and how much is just, you know. So in, in where I live, you can stand in the shade and it's not cooler because it's humid. <laughs> well, it's, so just got, it's sun safe. Well, it's got me thinking that, I mean, we could be prescriptive as teachers saying, right, we're going to do said lesson because I've, I've got this micro bit or some form of device that will measure a thing. And of course, that's a good start. Maybe we can consider it as a scaffold and go, right, our kids, so you know it now can measure this. What else could we do? Mm. And just let them decide. And then they're more likely going to be um, keen to chat about it and study it because they're the ones who came up with it in the first place. Okay. Uh, uh, this is fantastic. And it, it, it's very, really cool actually yeah, catching up with you, learning a, just a bit about what you're doing with STEM outdoors. I mean, I mean, I actually, always, I'd love to always find out what people think um, regards from if you had a bunch of people in front of you who are going to learn from you like right now so imagine you're in front of a bunch of undergraduate primary teachers who are going to start teaching their science units of course they will very soon next year because they're about to graduate so you've got 30 of those uh, teachers in front of you and, you're, you, and they're thinking 
how do I integrate STEM in my classroom to go outdoors? What's the simplest step that you give as advice to um, get them going? Uh, I would say buy yourself a microbit, $30. The newer one has a speaker as well and I think a few more features. Um, and run through some of the projects yourself. Yeah. Just run through it. And, I mean, be creative. Think about how can I have all of my subjects in my class, how can I look at them from an integrated approach rather than have English, math, science, history, geography? How can I, so I can use digital technologies to teach maths. I can make a dice with microbit and run a probability lesson in maths using my microbit that I made yesterday, my dice that I made yesterday. So think beyond a textbook. Uh, so we don't use textbooks and we barely use worksheets. So it's, it's really just practical, hands-on, let's write down what we've learned um, type of things. We still have maths talks and, you know, we still have the theory and, and, and the curriculum. We teach all of the New South Wales syllabus, but how do you, how can you teach it so it's engaging and practical and it has a use so that you don't get that chat of when am I ever going to use this? Yep. But um, I think the key thing for teaching STEM is have a go yourself first. And I always sort of say, if you're going to teach a novel, you read the novel. Yep. So if you're going to teach a coding, if you have to teach coding, do the project first. It doesn't take much. And at least then you will work out some of the problems you might come across in the classroom because you will have already done it yourself. And the microbit.org site does have, most of the projects I've talked about are actually on that site. Um, and you're really just looking at the basic and always go back to your syllabus or your curriculum and work out exactly what do I have to teach? Because I think sometimes we overteach. We go too deep and that's great if the kids are interested in it, but if you're screaming your time poor, go back to what do I actually have to teach? And with coding, it's actually not a huge amount that we have to teach. It's more the concepts and the process. So let's get a really practical process so that we kids can learn that um, through hands-on. Oh, I love that. Yeah, and, and I guess we're, uh, don't recreate the wheel if someone's made a really nice round wheel. Learn no. to roll it. That's right. <laughs> yeah, it's it. It's, it. That's pretty much it. And I, I don't know. I, I think don't be afraid. Mm. Don't be afraid. Um, a lot of people say, oh, you know, we we'll let the kids explore, and that's great if that philosophy works for you. For me, I like to know that I can teach the bottom half of the class. So the bottom half of the class are the kids who are going to have to sit there and go, right, everybody, click on the pink menu now. Grab out the on button A press, now grab the blue menu. That I have to be able to teach those kids. And then I have kids just like everyone in my class who are like, can we go and do something else? Yes, you can make it more complicated if you want to, but you have to be able to teach the bottom half, the kids who don't know how to do it by themselves. So you can't always just rely on, oh, but the kids know and they can work it out because some of them can't. Um, whether it's because of the time frame or lack of interest, um, there are a group of kids in your class who will always need you to go through step by step. Might be just lack of confidence. But um, I never hold back the ones that want to go further. 
Yeah. You know, so that's probably another. No, I actually think it's a great, a great way to wrap up just good teaching. And in this case, teaching outdoors. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Ben. Yeah. Oh, thank you very much for hanging out for me. It is a Friday evening. Yeah, it was good to chat for sure. Uh, so thank you very much. So um, so we hope to catch you soon again. What, is there anything coming up in the cars next year or two that you go, you know what, I wish I could do this project? I'm always looking for great projects. Yeah. Uh, something that I'm really excited about is um, Girls' Day Out. Yes, so, that's good. Them, that's coming up in... Um, science week yep. it will be their fourth year i think it's betraya um, sketek yeah yeah so um we're we're best buddies mm-hmm. um so that's a really great activity um it's predominantly for girls it's an online activity and it, this year the focus is on glass yeah and the properties of glass so that started in port macquarie in 2019 with 300 girls at csu um which I was very proud to be part of. And then the last two years, it's been online. So this year it's online again, which is great because it goes international. And you can actually do it. If you don't catch it live, you can still catch it afterwards. And it's free because it's sponsored. Yeah. So it's a really great, um, a great project for um, kids to get involved in. Love it. Well, I'm interested to see what you come up with. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> really really cool I'm looking forward to uh sharing i'll come back to you if i find something exciting oh awesome hey thanks very much for hanging out with me um have a fantastic evening you too we hope you've been enjoying the physics ed podcast we love making science make sense why don't you book us for a science show or workshop in your school if you're outside of australia you can connect with us via a virtual excursion see our website for more Well, I really enjoyed that chat with Meredith. I mean, hearing about how she's making outdoor education really sing with her students by incorporating STEM really must resonate with her students for sure and really and take that subject matter to a whole nother level. Now, by the way, you can hang out with her on social media using a couple of hashtags. She facilitates the hashtag STEM in nature and the other hashtag STEM in the world. And she's often sharing knowledge and ideas and things through her handles at iMarinet and the other one at Make, Create, Educate. And as usual, we have all the different links and things in the show notes, and you can go check out all the different social things and all the resources and many of those projects that were mentioned before. So uh, look, what a great conversation. I hope you enjoyed this. As usual, we've got more STEM educators coming on to this Physics Ed podcast. You've been listening to me, by the way, Ben Newsom. I'm from Physics Education. We teach science in lots of different ways, and we have a ball doing it. So for now, enjoy wherever you are, whether it's morning, noon, evening, or night. Uh, We've been hanging out (laughs) and uh, we'll catch you another time. You've been listening to another Physics Ed podcast. We're excited about science. Subscribe to us on iTunes to download the next episode as soon as it's released. And don't forget, for hundreds of ideas, free experiments, our new Be Amazing book and more, go to physicseducation.com.au. That's physics spelled F-I-Z-Z-I-C-S. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network. AEON.net.au